0: Quick disclaimer some slightly more disturbing stuff than usual this week. Nothing terribly graphic, but please check out the post on mythpodcast.com if there's a concern. This week on Myths and Legends, it's the story of a small family hiding out in the wasteland in a world lost and cursed, and the secrets that world contains. You'll see which breakfast drink might help you with slaying some monsters, and how you don't want to question someone's math when they're feeding people to dragons. The creature this week is a human faced cow whose poster you should absolutely have up in your home. This is Myths and Legends, episode 351, Alternate History. This is a podcast where we tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you might think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. Today's story is from Britain in either the 4th 8th or 11th century It's a legend and kind of a famous one at that And we've actually mentioned a small part of the story on the podcast before I don't want to give anything away and we'll talk more about that at the end We'll jump in with a woman and her son And one of them is getting out of the dark forest no matter what it takes George waited until she was below, down in the cellar. When she disappeared around the corner, he lowered the doors down so the wood didn't smack stone, and he slid a broom in the handles. He whispered a quick, sorry, and slid from the house. When he was far enough out, he ran. It wasn't that he didn't love his mother, he did. He just wanted more than a life in the forest, even if it was with her. He had grown up with only Kalib in the heart of a thick forest. She would never let him venture beyond the cairn, the pile of stones, at the trail's end. Well, today was the day. He scooped up his pack, the one that he had hidden away in the hollow of the tree, and made for the cairn. He paused for a moment by the stones. One more step, and he would be farther than he had ever been. He breathed deeply and parted the branches in front of him. It was gone. It was all gone. I tried to keep you from it, Kaleeb said, brushing splinters from her cloak. George, nine years old, turned, his mouth still agape. What happened? Khaleb gestured to the wasteland that laid before them. Black, charred earth that, a decade on, still couldn't support life. For miles and miles, the hills were silent. The end of days happened, Kaleeb explained. But there was no salvation, only destruction, torment. She sighed and walked back to the stones. She had never told him, but this is where he fell. George's father. After the dragons and the wizards and the fire came the hungry, the violent, the raiders. They found the family's hiding place. The forest Kaleeb kept hidden from the world. She killed the last few he hadn't been able to. She had made a pile of stones here because, well, there wasn't enough left of him to bury. George flew to his mother and buried his face in her cloak. She said she knew the day would come when he had to learn the truth, but she thought they had more time. She was so sorry. When they arrived back home, George saw his mother take a stick from her cloak and wave it at the cellar door, or the gaping hole that had been the doorway. Pebbles rolled back to rocks, and splinters fused to planks. In a moment, the door was back in place. She smiled and winked at her son. Five years later, George put down the book. He opened his mouth, but his mother knew the words before he spoke them. You want to be a knight, she said, without looking up from her carrots. George said he had read the books. She taught him how to use a sword and a lance. What if there were others out there? Kaleeb took a deep breath. She rose and, without looking, told George to follow her. He wanted to know what knights were like she would show him nights. On the opposite side of the lands, from the Karen and his father, there was a wide, flat stone. With a motion of his mother's wand, it slid to the side, revealing a stairway of rough-cut stones descending into the darkness. After the light above them failed, the candles lining the stairway sputtered to life. With them came the cries. Men, down in the dark... The cries that echoed were hopeless. They were cries of pain and despair that the men knew would never be heard, but only made because it was the last, best thing they could do in this world. Prepare yourself, Kaleeb said. Grubby, stinking hands and lace-ridden beards strained as far as they could see past the bars, while eyes and lips pleaded with the pair. Freedom, freedom or, or death. At this point, they didn't care. Khalid pointed to the men. When the world outside fell, they had been knights. They had been in control. But when more of the world was lost, they searched for other lands. They found the forest, but she found them first. She's a witch, one of the knights cried. With a flick of her wand, the man hit the back wall of the cell while the others rushed to his aid. Kaleeb said, yes, she was a witch. And she was proud of that. If she hadn't been, these men would have come in and taken everything. George followed her from the room. He stopped her in the hallway. He needed to go. She asked what he could possibly mean by that. He had seen the wasteland. The heroes of the former age now stalked and consumed the helpless. George pointed that. That was why he needed to go. He was strong. He could do what those knights only claimed to do. Protect the weak. He could be justice and honor for a cursed world. Kaleeb smiled. She said she shouldn't be surprised. That was how she raised him, after all. And he was too much like his father. But she meant that in a good way, not like a Darth Vader thing. She was just... Worried about him. So, she would teach him magic. George's face grew serious. Magic? His mother smiled, yes. Then no one could ever hurt him. That's how she had kept them safe for all this time. It would take years to teach him, of course, but in the end, she would give him this. She pressed the wand in his hand. Dazzling light snaked up from the edges in a circle before forming a star at the top, illuminating the cavernous hall with a warm glow. How are you doing that? Khalib grew serious. George shook his head. He didn't know. The ground began to rumble. George knew it was coming from the wand. From him. Okay, stop. We're underground. You'll kill us. Give me the wand. Kaleeb commanded. George turned and handed the wand, or intended to. He pointed it, and a wall exploded. His ears ringing, George felt around in the darkness. His hand found the wand, and though he was afraid, he gripped it. The light grew, and it illuminated horrors. The wall, the wall it destroyed, wasn't a wall it was a hidden doorway to a crypt george shook the bodies the remains they they were too small why were they so small he turned to find his mother standing in shock and horror not at the room full of bones though she recoiled at george's look at the disgust in his eyes. George looked at what could only be described as a mass grave. Some carelessly tossed in the room, some huddled by the wall. Khalib said that she was looking for him, for George. George leveled the wand at her. He needed to know everything. She had been the witch of the woods. She carried off infants, and they, they would never return. Then, one day, she found George. He had the strangest birthmarks. A dragon on his chest, a blood-red cross on his hand. She read the signs. He had a grand destiny. So, she raised him. George's hand shook as tears dribbled down his cheeks, She stole him. Kaleeb shook her head. No, she loved him like a son. George's mother had died in childbirth. His father could not be bothered and his nurses regularly left him crying and hungry for hours. She raised him as her own. She was his mother and he had changed her. She stopped all this and hoped that he would never find out. She said she was sorry. She hoped he could forgive her. She opened her arms and walked forward. But George had the wand. He pushed her back into the wall. She struggled, but it was useless. He had the wand. Are you really going to kill me? Kill your mother? Khaleb laughed. No, George said, stepping back. Khaleb dropped from the wall. But you're not my mother. He pointed the wand at the ceiling and the doorway collapsed. George staggered to the cell with the knights, pointed the wand at the cell door, and the iron turned inward and tore, blooming into the cell. The knights rushed to freedom as George collapsed. One stopped, and then another. They helped George to his feet, and together they left the darkness. From the deep, as they all climbed the stairs and some knights saw the sun for the first time in years, they could hear Khaleb pounding on the stones, calling out for her son. We'll see what happens with George now that he knows the truth, but that will be read right after this. Six knights scavenged as much food as they could from the home. while George explored the land he thought he knew. Khaleb's magic was failing. And the forest was full. Ruined keeps, crypts, towers. A stable with all the horses she had captured over the years. Pit with a lion and countless bones. Kaleeb only kept the best knights in her dungeon. In the end, George had found a horse. He named his sword Ascalon. And he put on some armor. It would be everything he needed to survive in the wasteland, George mused aloud, on the edge of his mother's lands, next to the Karen that was, well, just another lie. He gripped the wand and, with a single motion, broke it over his knee, tossing the pieces on the stone. George took a deep breath and asked the six knights in attendance if it was okay if he traveled with them. The knights said, sure. They were stopping at Coventry, not a day's ride from the forest. George said there was was a settlement? What about the dragons? The wizards? The knights asked what he was talking about? They parted the leaves and revealed a warm and vibrant countryside, rolling hills, sheep, fluffy clouds riding summer winds. George walked out and dropped to his knees, his eyes streaming at the beauty of the land ahead. It had all been a lie. It was all still here. The group made for Coventry. They stayed nine months at the city of Coventry. And throughout that time, George never really grew accustomed to the world. Other people, it was all so beautiful the six knights he freed invited George to be the seventh of their number and they let him stay with them as they all recovered in Coventry Castle. The Earl threw tournaments in which George proved himself to noble and commoner alike and at the end of the nine months, after the knights recovered from the hospitality of George's mother, they all agreed. Knight errant? Knight errant. It was time to go. Sure, they defeated a dangerous child-murdering sorceress, but being a knight was more of a what have you done for the king lately, sort of thing. So, they prepared, packed up, crossed the channel, and nothing. It was an uncharacteristically peaceful time for medieval Europe, I guess, because they rode for 30 days straight, without so much as a dragon, a giant, or a mythological dwarf yelling insults at them. It was a disaster. The knights decided to split up, All seven of them didn't need to run down the occasional horse thieves or rescue cats from trees. Just kidding, it was medieval Europe. They hated cats. Besides, if they split up, cast a wider net, maybe they will be able to find something worthy of their time and skill. They said goodbye, parted. Three months later, and several weeks after he crossed over the Bosphorus, George heard a scream. Look, Was he happy to see a woman chained to a bronze pillar, left there for some tragic purpose? Well, yes. Yes, he was. He wasn't happy that she would die, that wasn't it. But oddly expensive bronze pillar? Person in need? Weird sacrifice situation? This had all the makings of a big legendary deal, and, well, I mean, there had to be a reason a reason he never knew his birth parents, a reason his adoptive mother turned out to be a monster, a reason for all of his pain. And here, here it was. Probably. The procession of elderly women shuffling back, out of the sun and away from the weeping, wailing woman, showed no emotion. He rode to where he was cutting off one of the women, blocking her from the rest of the group with his horse. He dismounted and demanded to know what... What was all this? Dragon, the woman said, and moved to make her way around George. George stepped in her way. Dragon. Yep. And she was just nonchalant about this? A, a dragon? The woman said she didn't want to stick around and see it. She didn't like to watch. This was her job, though. Finding innocent maidens for a dragon to devour each day for the last 24 years. George staggered back every day. Every day, the woman tried again to shuffle around George. The sacrifice still screamed about 40 meters behind her. Weekends? Holidays? George looked off to the side for a moment. Every day means every day. Dragons don't go on holiday. The woman gave up trying to get around George. But that's... George checked his math. That's 8,760 maidens. Yeah, Kind of amazing that the king managed to keep his daughter out of the running for so long, right? The king of Egypt was facing a full-on revolt, though, if he didn't put her name in the lottery. It took a few months, but here she is. George was still hung up on the numbers. Almost 9,000 maidens, though? Like, were they sure the population could support a maiden a day? <sighs> the old woman sighed, look. She didn't have time to go into this, but Josephus, but the entire population of Egypt at 7.5 million excluding the city of Alexandria. Granted, this was around 60 AD, and many people think those numbers were inflated, putting the real total, close to about 4.5 million, including Alexandria, dropping to 3.5 million before the 7th century. Then, there was a plague, which dropped it to about 2.6 million, according to 8th century Islamic tax records. See that this is the 8th century, and we'll be super conservative and put the population at 2 million. George tried to interrupt and say she made her point, but the old woman shook her head. No. He kept her here. He was incredulous. She had done a lot of research on this, and he was going to hear every bit of it. So, half of the population was women. Let's say a third of those are unmarried. You're looking at 300,000 eligible sacrifices. Assuming that the population doesn't almost double again, which it does after the plague in the 7th century, let's say those 9,000 women only represent about 3% 3% of their particular demographic, and less than half a percent of the population at large. And this is spread out over 24 years. So, yes, the takeaway here is that the population can support a maiden a day diet for a dragon, and also that with enough math, you can minimize it enough to make horrific atrocities of 9,000 preventable deaths seem like rounding errors. She's beautiful, though, George said, unsheathing Ascalon, his sword. That's, that's not relevant, the old woman said, then took her opportunity to slip around George while he was enamored with the sacrifice. It is to me. This horrible practice ends today, for I will slay this dragon, George said, then looked around. Crone! No, oh, she left. Ascalon sliced right through the chain holding the princess, and George held out his hand. She was free. She said she wasn't, A captive? This was her time. She would do what was necessary to save her people from the dragon's rage. When he didn't get his maiden a day, there were so many more that would die. It was very basic utilitarianism, and she accepted her role in this. Whoever this knight was, he needed to step aside and let this happen. George asked why she was crying like that. Sabia, the princess, said that she was about to get eaten by a dragon. She was processing the terrifying existential consequences of being devoured by a dragon because, while she was religious, no one really knew for sure what would happen to her when a dragon bit down on her head. Well, you're very attractive. Leave. I got this. George looked off in the distance, to the growing dust cloud. That's not... relevant? The princess was the second person to tell him that in so many minutes. And no... She wasn't leaving. He didn't got this. No one got this. So many knights had died trying to stop the women they loved from being sacrificed. George turned. Yeah, wait, why not feed everyone to the dragon? Why just unmarried women? Why do you think? Sabia put her hands on her hips. When it became clear that neither of them were going to leave, George did the only thing he could. He stepped in between Sabia and the dragon. And Sabia watched her hero get just viciously owned. She appreciated the bravery, but it was seemingly completely unfounded. She had seen turnip farmers put up a better fight against the monster. Tail swipes crunched his plate armor and shattered his ribs. Claws dug into gaps and sunk into flesh. Poison and acid seared his skin whenever it came into contact. The dragon, possibly sensing that he would need to crack George's armor like a nut, and already being worn out from the fight, smacked George away after he went unconscious, he and his armor rolling to a hard stop under a nearby tree. George struggled to open his eyes as he saw the dragon lumbering towards Sabia, awaiting her death on a bronze monolith. The dirt bubbled and melted from the dragon's saliva. George looked around him to the Orbs dotting the grass surrounding the tree. Oranges. He had hit an orange tree. He didn't carry arrows or anything else he could use against the monster. He could barely stand, but he had to do something. With a splot, the orange hit the side of the dragon's neck, and the scales broke down and fell away. The dragon shrieked. George looked at the orange in his hand. What? Yeah, it turns out, oranges. Dragons hate oranges. Even the fragrance is enough to keep them away. George wouldn't have known this because oranges wouldn't even make it to Italy until the 9th century and Britain until the 16th century. Also because this is a completely made-up thing. The dragon, instead of fleeing, rushed to charge. And George, seeing that the dragon wasn't an unstoppable force of nature, found his strength renewed. It wasn't long until Ascalon arced upwards, and George buried the sword in the dragon's neck. The blood bubbled and smoked all around them, and George completed his strike. The dragon's head flopped to the ground, and George flopped to the ground soon after. The last thing he saw was Sabia running to his aid. will see that slaying the dragon was actually the easy part of George's journey, but that will, once again, be read right after this. One of our goals this year is eating more organic, and fewer preservatives, less sugar. These are little steps toward being healthier, and it starts with just being smarter about what we buy.
1: Both what and where? And Thrive Market is making it easy for us to find swaps that are sustainable and vetted to the point it's becoming our go-to for household and grocery essentials.
0: Yeah, you can't argue with delivery straight to your door. That's a time-saving convenience I think all of us need.
1: We spend most of our time in the certified organic and probably the vegetarian dietary filters. We just like a lot of the stuff in there.
0: We discovered Annie's Organic Bunny Fruit Snacks, Bob's Red Mill Muesli, the whole jovial line of pastas. Really, whether you need pet supplies, household cleaners, pantry items, meat, or seafood, Thrive Market has this and more, and in the most convenient way.
1: Plus, we're saving money each time, like around 30%, I think.
0: We saved over $22 on our last order with Thrive Market, and we got everything from recycled trash bags to pasta, protein, and beyond.
1: Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order, plus a free $60 gift. Go to thrivemarket.com slash legends for 30% off your first order, plus a free $60 gift. That's T H R I V E market.com slash legends thrivemarket.com slash legends
0: George awoke to lute music and a diamond the diamond had been left on his bedside by Sabia who hadn't left his bedside since she led his horse back to the city it was a betrothal gift She wanted to marry him. George took her hands into his. Yes. After George managed to walk again, he went to go visit his future father-in-law, who, despite George having saved his daughter and freed his kingdom from a 24-year monster assault, had not come to visit George in the infirmary. As George walked in, he saw a man not break eye contact with him at all, but instead stay on him the whole time with a vicious, intense energy. George shook his head. What was that guy's problem? The door shut behind him. My daughter will not convert to Christianity, the king shrieked. George said, okay, that wasn't a deal breaker for him. They hadn't even talked about that, and they hadn't in the original text. The king gave a seething scowl that told George he definitely believed what the man just said. He said the couple was getting ahead of themselves by even discussing marriage, though, because George had only fulfilled half of what he needed to do in order to win her hand. George didn't understand how. He killed the dragon. He rescued her. They loved each other, though that third one didn't usually factor into conversations like this. The king took out his edict, the one declaring that whoever killed the dragon won his daughter's hand and pointed to the second part that looked like it had been hastily scribbled on there this morning, but really had been there the whole time. Whoever wanted to marry his daughter had to kill the dragon that plagued their kingdom for over two decades and deliver a letter. George said, oh, wait, really? Deliver a letter? The king nodded. Yep, that second one was super important. Take a letter to his friend, the king of Persia, in Persia, George sighed. I mean, it was just delivering a letter. How critical was it? Could they maybe skip that one? You know, on account of all the people that wouldn't die because of what he just did out there? Uh, skip the quest? I think not, friend. The king wagged his finger back and forth. According to Google Maps, driving from Egypt to Persia is nearly the same distance as driving from New York to Los Angeles, the king said. It was a tough quest. George furrowed his brow. What did Yorvik have to do with any of this? Was there a new one now? He only understood about four words from that sentence. Regardless, that's what you need to do. Here you go. The king handed George the letter, but then barked when George started to open it. No peeking. George wasn't his son-in-law yet. Or ever. George turned around. Sorry, he didn't catch that last part. Nothing, the king smiled. I'm going to have you killed okay who are Rosencrantz and Guildenstern the prince of Persia read the letter that was more of an illusion and a literary flex than oh never mind it says here kill the bearer of this letter got it the prince of Persia's own men rushed him sword out The, the ruler held up a hand guys him come on George looked at the men about to tackle him. Wait, what? The prince of Persia was annoyed. Did the king of Egypt know how expensive it was to capture and keep lions? And now this George guy was killing his lion. Admittedly, he was doing it in the most dangerous, difficult way possible by shoving his hands down the lion's throat until it suffocated. Yes, really, according to the original. Now, me, Jason, I'm legitimately not sure how this works. I don't claim to be an expert in lion asphyxiation. It would be weird if there was one. But I feel like there has to be a way that doesn't put you directly in the path of a lion's bite. That being said, I did do a quick search and found that the lion bite force, while strong, not super impressive. It's actually not even middling. Still, I would probably just try to loop my arm wraps around the lion's neck and choke it and not shove my hands down its throat. Regardless, the lion was dead and the king of Persia was livid. This was supposed to be a fun public execution and now it was just death, but sad death. He didn't want to deal with this guy anymore. This was just a favor to a friend that went bad. He tossed George in the dungeon and then managed to forget about him. For seven years... George's only companions were rats, snakes, and roaches. He subsisted on stinking water and whatever moldy tack made its way down there. But for seven years, there in the darkness where even his jailers didn't want to linger long, he worked. Early on, he managed to wiggle a rusty staple, a bar in the wall, free from the stones. It was slow going, but the staple was harder than the wall, and after nearly a decade, he made the final chip. The hole was big enough, and he was, well, wisp-thin enough to squeeze through. The tunneling was easy after that, and the night after he freed himself, he walked in the stable and, without hesitation, slew the stable hands. He looked down on them briefly, but he had no time to dwell. He had made his choices. He leapt atop the horse and rode from the city. My boy, George heard from the king of Egypt when he kicked open the man's door. The king said he was so worried when they heard about the Persian king's treachery, they thought him dead. You you wrote in the letter, kill the person who holds this letter, George pointed. He was wielding the sword from the necromancer's house after he drew it and freed a Welsh saint from a seven year long sleep, it was the whole thing. He also slew a crowbar-wielding giant. Anyway, and you read the letter on the way to Persia and switched it out or something, right? The king of Egypt asked, and George said, no, he choked a lion with his wrists and then was imprisoned. The king of Egypt said that that didn't make any sense, but it was all water under the bridge now. George was safe, and the king of Egypt's daughter would be married, the king said with a wink. George said at least the king of Egypt was on board with the marriage. They could put all of this behind them. The king said, of course he was. Wait, was George cool with it? That was surprising. George asked why it was surprising that he and Sabia would get married. The king laughed. Ah, there it is. That's a miscommunication. He got it now. That was on him. Yes, she was not marrying George. She was marrying the king of Morocco. Sorry, he understood how that could be confusing. The king looked to George. Hey, wh- where'd he go? George. Georgie boy. Oh, well. George was already on his way to Morocco. He was going to rescue Sabia. Why? Why are we kneeling? George whispered to the other beggar. The beggar next to him scowled at the obvious cosplay. George had made it to Morocco, but instead of walking in the front door and declaring himself like he had in Persia, basically the same distance, by the way, once he crossed the equivalent of the continental United States and then went home, he basically set out again immediately, on horseback. How Sabia and the king of Morocco weren't married yet is beyond me, because that trip would take weeks, if not months, in a world that, was not already full of dragons and monsters. Anyway, George dressed up like a beggar, which, yeah, was probably more offensive to the people in need in the city than he intended, but with the ragged clothes and whatnot, but it served its purpose. Soon, he was kneeling in the women's palace. It was a happy accident that George was in this particular disguise, because each morning, Sabia employed an army of beggars to pray. Yes, she went one by one exhorting them to pray for the man she loved, George, who went out on a mail delivery task and never returned. When she got to the actual George, she gasped. He looked just like the man she loved. George reached for her hand and said he had something for her. He slipped the diamond ring on the finger, the one she had given him the day he slew the dragon, nearly 10 years prior. She gripped his hand and pulled him to his feet. The couple embraced, and Sabia said they needed to leave, now. One year later, George rode back to the gate of the city of Morocco. The story does not say which city in Morocco. It was not quite as specific with regard to the geography of North Africa as it was with the geography of the English Midlands. Regardless, he had come with a challenge for the king of Morocco. Single combat. If the king won, the king could marry Sabia, and all of this would be over. The king asked why he would do that. That didn't make sense. He could just pepper George with arrows from the wall and be done with it. Who was going to stop him? Me, George said. Yeah, you and what army, the king laughed, not realizing he was teeing up the big reveal. One by one, six armies appeared on the horizon, surrounding the city. The other knights that had ridden from England had a productive, conquering time in Europe, Asia, Africa, and the Middle East, and they came to the aid of the youngest in their number, to save the one who saved them all those years ago. The King of Morocco agreed to single combat because, at least there, he had a chance. Though a legitimately terrible one, when George ran him through almost as soon as the fight began. George took his crown, but he didn't stop there. He was a self-professed Christian, sure, but seeing as Jesus was famously silent on the concepts of forgiveness, revenge, and the turning of cheeks, the self-titled Knights of Christendom rode to make sure George's old enemies got theirs. The king of Egypt did not wait, jumping from the walls before George and company made it. And George decided to treat the king of Persia to some of his own punishment, locking him up in his own dungeon so he could be sociable with the rats and snakes. He did patch the holes though. Given that his family was a noble one, upon his return to England, he was able to claim his father's lands. Long after the man died, we're not told much about the end of the story, just that he and Sabia were finally married. And that they had two children. I like to picture them all walking through the forests of George's youth, him telling his family about the world as he thought it was, and the witch, who, yes, was evil, but was complicated and did raise him. Above all, it made him grateful that they had each other, that he finally had a family. We've told the story of St. George and the Dragon before in episode 44. I found this much-expanded story, and admittedly, kind of fell in love with the opening third or opening quarter, where a child is raised in the forest, thinking that he's living in a wasteland, only to realize that his mother is a child-murdering witch who stole him. St. George, as he would come to be known, was a real person, though today's story is absolutely made up. The English flag, though, the red cross on a white background is St. George's Cross. I have posted the link to the expanded version of this particular George and the Dragon legend on the site. The creature this week is Kudan, from Japanese folklore. Kudan means matter, more on that later, but also human-faced bovine, which, you know, I know I'm jokey and critical, but Japanese folklore didn't have to come at me with such a personal attack. Like yours truly, the human-faced bovine is chill and nice. It wants what's best for you. Unlike me, it will use that prophecy power to help you when a bountiful harvest will come and encourages you to paste up images of himself in your house to prosper and ward off evil. Apparently the first one, born in 1819, spoke, asking not to be slaughtered despite his horrifying appearance. And when your food-to-be begs audibly for its life, probably a good idea to listen and maybe question some life choices, I don't know. This particular part of the legend comes from a time of famine, in 1836. And there was speculation that people were just looking for any hope they could get, even if it was in the form of a talking, maybe a little narcissistic bull. Another one, supposedly born in 1909, spoke and lived for a little over a month. The body was stuffed and put on display in a museum, but... that museum was in Nagasaki, so... yeah, given... 20th century history, it is understandable why they lose track of a stuffed bull. There was still another spotting in 1930 in a forest in Kagawa Prefecture, saying that there would be a great war in which the Japanese would win, but after they would be struck down by plague. Those that tied yarn around their wrists and ate red beans within three days of hearing the prophecy would not grow sick. That turned out to be less than correct, but that didn't stop people from claiming they saw the creature throughout World War II even as far away as Brazil. The creature's name can also mean matter, like the matter at hand. So the phrase that appears on legal documents that apparently means on the truth of the cudan, really means on the truth of the matter, and it's much older than the creature. So legal documents are not, in fact, referring to a human-headed prophecy cow. that's it for this time myths and legends is by jason and carissa weiser our theme song is by broke for free and the creature of the week music is by steve Combs. there are links to even more of the music we used in the show notes thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time